Part 1. The General Chapter 1. First Meetings Less than five minutes after Dr. Zach Dozier passed into the cavernous innards of Minneapolis General Hospital on his first real day of work, he experienced his first moment of incipient fear at the hands of the general. It wasn't much, but then again it shouldn't have occurred at all. He was standing before the closed doors of the main bank of elevators. It wasn't yet 6 a.m. He was alone. When the doors to elevator number two slid open, an odor of cheap perfume mixed with stale tobacco wafted outward before all else. The lone occupant was a woman, 60 or a little older, wearing a curious and peculiar hat. A pillbox hat, Zach realized, only because it was of the same sort his partner had worn in their senior high play, breakfast at Tiffany's. Zack politely stood aside, allowing the woman room to exit. When she did not, he stepped forward. He casually nodded her way and pressed the button for the second floor. The doors closed with a worn mechanical hiss, and the elevator lurched up a foot, then dropped two and stopped. Zack's stomach did a little loop-de-loop. The woman leaned back against the rear wall but didn't fall. Zack quickly made as if to put his hand out to brace her. She was wearing a housecoat, black it was, and he thought it lent her a rather stern look, especially since it was July. Zack himself was already too warm in his suit coat and tie. Excuse me, are you okay? She did not answer, didn't acknowledge him at all, really. They didn't touch. He tried to look her in the face, and that's when he experienced that moment of incipient fear. Her face was exactly that of a mannequin, a made-up thing blank in all the wrong places. No mouth, no nose, no eyes. He blinked. She did have eyes, of course. A mouth and nose, too. Her forehead was towering, was all. A broad swath of flesh that seemed to run on forever before that pillbox hat capped it. He had somehow focused on that broad, featureless expanse. Her head was ever so slightly larger than most. That was all. A big head and a funny hat, and she had a mouth, a nose, and eyes. After a brief moment, the elevator resumed moving. It went down, not up as Zack had anticipated, and his stomach did that little loop-de-loop -loop thing again. He had pressed two, but perhaps the woman had pressed for the basement. But hadn't the panel indicated this car was going up before the doors had opened? He thought so, and a little voice in his head said as much. This car's going the wrong way, old Zacky boy. Down, down, down. Get you two dollars back if that ain't a fact. It's okay, Zack said. The woman did nothing to even indicate awareness. She stood mute, almost cold in her manner. The car stopped and the doors opened and Zack bent to tie his shoe. When he looked up, the woman was gone. A sign on the wall opposite the elevators, faux wood grain and no bigger than a large bumper sticker, held the word morgue with an arrow pointing to the left under it. Zack stuck his head out before the elevator doors could close. He looked left, then right. Wide, cinder-block-walled corridors stretched outward in either direction, long and empty. No sign of the woman. Weird, he murmured aloud, thinking she must be more spry than she looked. He glanced at his watch, two minutes to six, and leaned back into the elevator. He pressed two again, and the doors began their slide toward one another. Zack was alone on the elevator, but he didn't feel alone. And being watched, he thought, 
turning, as if checking that indeed he was the elevator's sole occupant. Except, being watched wasn't quite right. He felt, and this was his second moment of incipient fear that morning, exactly as if the woman in the pillbox hat was still on the elevator with him. That odor of cheap perfume mixed with stale tobacco suddenly wafted big in his nose. Before he could actually think about it, he stuck his hand out between the closing doors. The bumpers nudged his arm, and the doors made a critchy sound and slid apart. He stepped off. He looked again at the cinder block wall before him, at the smallish sign glued upon it. Morgue, with an arrow pointing to the left under it. Only now there was another sign under the first. The same faux wood grain, the same large bumper sticker size. Stairs, it read with an arrow pointing to the right just under it. Had it been there when the doors of the elevator had first opened a moment before? Zack couldn't recall. He hadn't noticed it, that much was sure, but he couldn't say for sure it hadn't been there either. The elevator door slid closed behind him. He looked again up and down the hall. No idea where the woman in the pillbox hat had gone. The place was so empty, it echoed just looking at it. Stairs, the sign read with an arrow pointing to the right just under it. Weird, he thought, for the second time that morning. He looked at his watch again. Six o'clock straight up. No more time. Zack went right to the stairs. The resident physician's library of Minneapolis General Hospital was on the second floor, just above the ER. A largish room made smaller by the 60 or so newly minted docks crammed among its wooden book stacks, oak paneling, and worn chestnut brown carpeting. Several high-backed vinyl chairs occupied the center, but nobody sat. Few people even spoke. The bitter scent of black coffee suffused the air. Three quarters of the assembled white coats sipped their drink hurriedly. A quiet, nervous energy filled the space, not unlike mourners at a funeral, the sort who'd rather not be reminded of their own mortality. They didn't look like mourners, though. What they looked like, each of them in their new overstarched white lab coats were novitiates to an ancient and sacred religious order. Zack stood among them and twirled a pen in one hand and tried to look both knowledgeable and inconspicuous. He did not drink the coffee, liquid brain he called it, because he had never developed a taste for it. One by one, the room cleared until he alone was left. He hung by the door, but decided against poking his head out into the hallway. He didn't wish to appear too eager, or worse, to suggest his as yet unknown colleague was late. At ten past the hour, he made his way to one of those vinyl chairs and crouched to sit. Don't. Zack's butt barely brushed the vinyl. He startled, rose, and turned to find a stocky black man standing just beyond the doorway, beckoning with a wave of his hand. His muscles bulged against his tight-fitting surgical scrubs. His lab coat, with drops of blood across one sleeve, smears of dirt at the pockets, and a dark ring at the collar, was the antithesis of Zack's. A sweat-soaked surgical cap hit his scalp, which Zack guessed was bald. I'm Marcus Nero. Zack put a hand out as he came forward, but Marcus didn't shake. He gave a dismissive nod after a quick glance up and down Zack's person, then was off and moving without Zack quite realizing it. Zack hurried to catch up, barely managing it despite his tall legs and long stride. He found himself looking down at the back of the black man's head. Zack was a full head taller as they marched. Marcus spoke without turning around. Time is brain. Keep up, but stay out of my way. 
Answer when I talk to you. Keep quiet otherwise. And don't touch a fucking thing. Understand? Zack nodded. Marcus stopped, and now he did turn to face Zack, tilting his head up ever so slightly. Use your voice, asswipe. I don't do sign language. Yes, sir. You ain't gotta call me, sir. Marcus will do. And none of that Dr. Nero shit either. Okay, Marcus. My name is Asswipe will do for now. Let's move. It was six in the morning of a Monday, July 1st, 1991. Wedding day. Traditionally, the worst day of the year to be hospitalized, because new med school graduates are as likely as not to kill a patient in their first hours and days as physicians. They don't know what they don't know. Zach wasn't quite that new. He'd already completed his first year of post-med school training, his internship, near his home in Southern California. After 12 months as a surgical intern, Zach knew how to gown and glove sterilely. He could hold a retractor competently, staying out of the way so that a staff surgeon could see to work among the innards of the human body. He could place a decent line of stitches. He had made the occasional incision, but was still far from comfortable holding a scalpel. The feel of human flesh parting under his fingers was no longer novel, but it wasn't yet natural either. Finally, he could both recognize a surgical infection and initiate the proper antibiotics to treat it. In short, after a year in the trenches, he knew what he didn't know, which was a damn lot more than he could have said the year before. But as far as Marcus and the other neurosurgery residents were concerned, Zach could do little more than wipe his ass. Marcus Nero was a half dozen years older than Zach, but only two years ahead in training. Those were a steep two years, though, the difference between life and death being measured in sweat equity and time sowing human flesh. Their first business together was to reset the traction, keeping a man's broken neck from crushing his spinal cord. Zach watched Marcus do this, all the while knowing the slightest slip could result in paralysis. Ten minutes after that, Marcus cut urgently into a woman's neck. It was a bloody affair, but successful. Lifeless and blue on their arrival, Zach watched alongside Marcus as the woman pinked up, opened her eyes, and drew breath through the newly created hole. She could breathe now. Crisis averted, a life saved. Don't talk. You had a seizure. You'll be all right, though. Zach expected Marcus could crack open a head inside of five minutes when he needed to, drilling, sawing, and lifting out a piece of skull included. Marcus wasn't quite God, but he was close enough as far as Zach was concerned. Marcus spent much of the rest of the day babysitting Zach. He showed him how and where to find the scores of x-rays they reviewed daily and what lab results were important and where to find those. Sometime around two in the afternoon, Zach asked about lunch. Marcus headed him towards the vending machines, what Marcus called the dollar slots, because it was pretty random what you got when you pulled the lever, never mind what the display showed. That first day, Marcus even told Zach where and when to piss. He introduced Zach, if at all, as Dr. Asswipe, small a, and gave Zach the benefit of his little witticisms throughout the course of the day. Fucking chow hall takes too damn long. One of the staffers sees you in there. They know you ain't working hard enough. Trust me, you don't want them thinking you ain't working hard enough. By staffers, Marcus met the attending brain surgeons, the bosses at the top of the food chain. Get a sandwich from the dollar slots when you can. Keep a butterfinger in your pocket for those moments when you can't. And stay the fuck out the chow hall. Lose the goddamn suit and the patent leathers. They don't impress, and the first time you gotta crack a skull, they'll get bloodied up anyway. 
This ain't no fashion contest, asswipe. Scrubs is what we wear around here. Scrubs and sneakers. You'll be in and out of the OR ten times a day anyway. You get blood on them, you change. Trust me, you'll get blood on them. Mostly we eat at night. Hope chink food don't give you the trots. Quickest place is the walkaholic across the street. Open till 3 a.m. Try the late night wonton noodle soup. I recommend the hot chili sauce with it. If and you can take it, that is. Always carry a goddamn spinal needle with you. In your lab coat, in your back pocket, behind your ear. In your underwear next to your dong for all I care. But make sure it's on your person. You don't want somebody dying on you for lack of a fucking needle. Just ask Dan Sullivan. Zack had no idea who Dan Sullivan was, but that didn't seem to matter just then. I'll be here every day at 6. You'll be here at 5 a.m. until I tell you otherwise. Don't be late. I'll know if you're late. Don't use the elevators unless you have to. And even then, I'd think twice on it. They have a goddamn mind of their own and they'll fuck you sooner or later. Most likely sooner. Inefficiency will fucking kill you, Marcus said after Zach's third trip to the x-ray file room. Late in the day, Marcus pulled off his surgical cap. Nice haircut, Zach said, seeing the fluorescent lights bounce off Marcus's bald scalp. You talking to me, asswipe? Yes, sir. And with that, Zach had managed to violate two of Marcus's rules in less than 30 seconds. I told you don't fucking call me sir. And as far as the hair is concerned, you do well shave yours too. More efficient. I shave it once a week. No waiting on barbers. Don't even have to shampoo it. Goddamn minutes count around here, asswipe. Time is brain. I told you that already. You'll see. Zach nodded, and for the first time that day, Marcus smiled. He ran his hand over his scalp and said, It feels good, too. In bed, I mean. You'd be surprised how many nurses go for the smooth as a baby's ass look. Shit, some nights on call I don't get a wink of sleep, if you know what I mean. Not that you need to worry about that, not for a while, anyway. Zach couldn't tell if Marcus was joshing him or being serious. By noon of the second day, Zach was beyond exhaustion. He'd spent the previous two hours watching one of the staffers operate and trying to stay awake in the process. Watching brain surgery, and all he'd done was watch and move a little blood out of the way every now and again, was a tense affair. He kept imagining he'd do something wrong. He had no idea what, but it would no doubt be catastrophic. Bumping the brain and having the patient's memories of childhood go poof, or something like that. He came out of surgery feeling like a man who'd had a revolver pointed at his head all morning. He hit the dollar slots, drank a quick cup of liquid brain, that much had changed, fuel was fuel, and caught up with Marcus. Thanks, asswipe, Marcus said when Zach handed him his sandwich. I think that's ham. It turned out to be turkey, not that Marcus cared. <laughs>